Smurf Nibbling Construction. When you need a big project built on a tiny budget, trust the gnomes of Deep Forest to build you the finest framework you desire. Wood, stone, even red mushrooms with white dots. Smurf Nibbling Construction can get it done. That's Smurf Nibbling Construction. The other little blue people. See us in the yellow tone next to Gargamel Cauldrons. This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast. A podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, and you have been warned. And I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music on our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. Oh, and with that, welcome to the 485th episode of the Misdirected Mark Podcast. Tonight, we are going to be discussing developing frameworks for play for your tabletop role-playing games. But first, my name is Chris. My name is Phil. And I am messing up Chris's lighting for the shot by wearing a hat. <laughs> that is true. And I'm also Old Man Logan. Also true. <laughs> we are one We are one host down. Yeah, we, uh, Jerry's, Jerry's got some medical issues going on. And he'll he's be okay. back next week. He'll he's be okay. fine. He'll be fine. Yeah. But he'll be back next week. He'll be back next week. All right. All right. So uh, do you want to uh, get to it? Let's, yeah. Let's get to it. Let's, yeah. let's jump right in here. Let's do a temperature check. See how everybody's doing. Phil, how you feeling? Uh, physically, feel fine. No problems whatsoever. Fine. Uh, mentally, I'm like, I don't know, like a B minus. Like, I don't think there's anything majorly wrong, but I'm just not excited about anything recently. Like, I'm just doing it like life. Just Are doing, you doing it, with... it and doing it and doing it well. Oh, man. Love LL Cool J. <laughs> anyway, I, I will. T- maybe we'll talk about it in the after show, but I just like I can't find something to get excited about. And the nerd in me is like a little like, I don't know, upset about it. Like, I want to be nerding out about something sure. or just not. But anyway, like B minus. I think I'm fine ish. How about you, Chris? I'm, I am as I usually am. Good. My life is very level. I'm, I'm very zen these days. I like making stuff. Mm. So got got to do some fun stuff with more recording. Got to edit this last video, which I very much enjoyed. Like, things are good. Things are good. Good. That's all I got. Bob, what about you? We like good. Um, I am... Um, my neck's just being a little cranky. Otherwise, uh, physically, I'm doing pretty good. Mentally, I'm 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 with Phil like about a B minus. Um, you know, uh, nothing really uh, is sucking the joy out of my life at the moment. But it's not like super like yay, let's go. Nothing sucking the joy into his life either right now. Either. Well, you know, that's awkward. It's only awkward if you bang on the table and make the camera shake. <laughs> but hey, well, there's there's the camera shake. We are pro. Professional. Probably won't make it to the vi- the video. Probably won't make it to that. But podcast listeners, the camera shows. Yes. <laughs> Don't tell Movie. me how to make. Put the, the camera gun away. Shake. This is radio. <laughs> <laughs> Only right. sort of. <laughs> Only sort of. All right. I think that is enough of that. Do we have any announcements? I no. We have I got nothing. All right. Well, you know what we need to do. Then we need to fire up Phil's little uh, little ditty here. You ready? Are you ready? Uh, go. Workshop, workshop, it's all about frameworks. What kind of game are we running? Are we going into the box? Are we taking a journey? Are we going through the ocean of clues? We'll find out and we'll talk all about them here tonight. We're in the workshop. And don't suck. Don't suck. I don't know if I love the fact that people can now see me doing the workshop thing. Or hate the fact that people can see me doing the workshop. I don't I know think where I don't know where I fall on that yet. Yeah. So I don't know, peeps. If you're watching the video, like you tell me, oh. like I don't think I could do it without making those faces. Let like, us know in the comments. Yeah, yeah. Let, let us know in the comments if you know. I mean, look, I'm still gonna do it, but if you hate it, it'll just be like five <laughs> five or six seconds of hate. That's like, that's fair. <laughs> Years ago, I started ruminating on this idea called frameworks. 
Uh, I started seeing patterns in adventures I was reading and writing, and these patterns started to remind me of an idea that specific types of adventures were just a kind of house frame that you would fill with walls, paint, furniture, and other kinds of things you fill a house with, you know, parrots. Your decorating style leaves something to be desired. I don't know. What else you put in a house? I got lots of things in mind. The skulls of your enemies. The skulls of your enemies. Oh, there you go. Thanks, Bob. While they would differ from house to house uh, or adventure to adventure, there were ones that had the same basic framework and they were recognizable. Once I realized that, I ruminated on it for, you know, about half a decade. That's five, five whole years. Yeah, we've and, argued about this for a while. Yeah, yeah, a while. And spent several conversations with different people enthusiastically discussing the concept or arguing, as, as Phil said. It's actually more enthusiastic. <laughs> I, uh, I decided to try to put it into words today. So let's get into the concept of frameworks by opening the Panda Book of Definitions and having Phil regale us with his knowledge. Behold, you are in the presence of Definition Panda. I got three for tonight. We're going to define first framework. Uh, the set of parameters that player characters will engage with that create a specific play experience. The parameters contain the adventure structure, obstacles, and interludes that the players are going to encounter as they, you know, go through this. The next one, obstacle. Um, anything that attempts to harm, stall, impede, or force the characters to spend time and resources to get around it. And then finally, interlude. Uh, anything that assists the characters or provide them information about the setting, the situation they're in, or any encounter or scene that doesn't fit into the framework but fits into the genre. I'll even expound upon that. Interlude's also a perfect place for character-to-character -character interaction yeah. or character-NPC interaction, even if it doesn't do any of the things that you said. Like, you could just, you could just have an interlude, like, during um, short rest of just two characters chatting. Yeah, mm -hmm. man, it fits, especially if it fits into the genre of the game that you're playing. Yeah. Absolutely. Most most stories have that moment anyway. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you're going to probably want to know, why should I give a damn about this idea? And it's a very good question. Yep. But there are a number of reasons why the framework is important. One, understanding a framework helps with prep. Two, they work across genres. Once you understand your framework, you can apply them to different games with ease. And uh, third... They can provide a structure to follow, making it easier for GMs and players to more quickly determine a direction and immerse themselves in the story. There are also two more great reasons for understanding frameworks. Uh, the first is so that you understand what's expected of you when GMing a pre-written adventure. So understanding frameworks can help you determine what kind of adventure you're running. Uh, and adventure modules don't always do a great job of helping GMs with that. And I think this is in part because we lack the language to talk about we these. We do, often. But yeah. it would be super helpful if somebody was like, hey, this adventure is a heist. Like, right off the bat, like, you know, G like intro. This is a heist, so think heisty stuff while you're doing it. That's the first point. We're getting there. It's getting better. Mm -hmm. Yep. But even then, I, I still think that that's almost too basic in some ways. No, I agree. There are also many longer campaign adventures these days. There are. You know, most of them have multiple parts, like multiple adventures kind of packed into like an yep. arc. Um, these parts can all have different frameworks. However, if you understand what the framework is doing in each scenario, you can be more effective facilitating that part of the adventure and switching between them when necessary. Mm -hmm. All right. Second reason applies when coming up with your own adventures. Yes. Having knowledge of these frameworks is like a cheat code to adventure design. But 100% on this. Before we started talking about this in terms, I knew what I was doing when I was coming up with adventures. Mm -hmm. But now it's like so much easier to just look at a thing and be like, oh, this needs to be a box. This is a journey. This is a 
whatever. And we're going to talk about those. We're going to help you learn some of these, too. And I'm going to just say this now. We have a fledgling fledgling lexicon for this. Yes, we're not. We, we're, we're still developing it. We do not have like a, an exhaustive <laughs> list of years. these. Yeah. It took five years to get us to convince ourselves that the concept was right. It's a process. And to name a couple of them. Now, I think we can do even a bigger dive and start looking at all sorts of stories and plots for movies and things like that and start pulling out like, oh, that's this. That's this. That's this and this together kind of thing. Yep. Okay. So knowing the knowing the typical elements that go into one of these frameworks cuts down on the what am I going to do when you are kind of planning out your adventure and lets you just kind of like focus on making sure that you hit all the cool stuff that makes those frameworks cool. So now that we know why you might want to give a damn about this idea, let's talk about a few of them. For this section, we're going to be talking about what the framework is presenting to the players, the typical obstacles and interludes found within it, the play experience the framework provides, the adventure designs we could use as a basis, and a common scenario you would see using this framework. Chris, you want to start? I would love to, Bob. So the first one we're going to talk about is the journey. The idea of the journey is that your group, the party, is going to be traveling across a space over time with the goal of reaching a location and you will encounter obstacles and interludes which hinder or enrich your journey along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, typical obstacles, or the typical obstacles that you would find in this are something or someone chasing you. The Lord of the Rings, that one's easy, mm -hmm. right? The, the Nazgul chasing Frodo in the, in the group. Um, time, like you need to get there before the bomb explodes or whatever. Mm -hmm. NPCs waylaying you for any number of reasons. That happens constantly yeah, in journeys. Absolutely. Uh, the environment hindering your progress. That, mm -hmm. that is a, that's a classic. And the environment actually harming you, like poor... Uh, the horse from uh, the never-ending story, Atreides. <laughs> Easy, man. Easy. Like <laughs> too soon. content, content warning that content shit. Content warning like, that shit. Oh man, I don't even have tissues on the table. <laughs> then there are the typical interludes, which are other travelers sure. running into people. That's the Tom Bomb, the deal of it all. Sure. Right? Uh, setting oddities, uh, the, the wheel of time running into like the the weird stones that are actually gateways a long way before they're actually used. Things like that. Uh, historical elements that can give you history about the setting S and scenery worth describing like some of the greatest things in the lord of the rings are those the wonderful statues. shots and the big statues oh, yeah. yeah amazing vistas yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff yeah. like that so now let's talk about play experience mm -hmm. the typical play experience here focuses around resource management because you're journey sure. that's a mechanic usually yep. flexibility and potential encounters like you have a lot of flexibility in what you want to drop in there and then there's often mechanics and descriptions associated with travel over longer distances and longer times yeah so, absolutely like how that works like that, that usually ties into the resource management mm -hmm. of it all sure but those are like the big pieces of the journey uh adventures in middle earth tried pretty hard to get that right i will say that forbidden lands has actually nailed this 50 percent of forbidden lands is this framework yeah that game and yeah. they do a great job of yeah, it. it's very enjoyable in my yeah opinion. it's actually the first game where i never hand wave coming home from a from an adventure mm -hmm, that makes sense like i'm like oh you guys finished up at the dungeon site Cool, we're traveling home. If you hand wave that part of the game, then you're not playing a journey. So the basis for this framework is, is a little bit spread out. It's not one specific thing or it doesn't feel like one specific thing because the hex map works great for this. Love some hex maps. Yep. Mm -hmm. The event-based journey works great for this. Mm -hmm. That's often a very linear adventure design style sure. thing. And the point crawl maps often work great for this. Yep. So it's, if you want to get a little bit more spread out than the hex map, but you want to give them multiple avenues for travel. Yeah, absolutely. To talk about a video game for a second, the Pathfinder Kingmaker game yeah. does a very good job of that in the video. In, in like, if you go play it on Steam or whatever on your computer, the Kingmaker campaign setting is. Does it uh, have a hex map though? I don't know. Oh, it totally has yeah. a hex map. Yeah, that one. The video game doesn't have a hex map. It oh, uses, interesting. It uses a a point crawl map. 
Interesting. No, no, there's a full hex map when you, uh, when you, there's full hex map if you play it as the Pathfinder adventure. Makes sense. Common adventures, like the journey to destroy an evil artifact at a specific location. Iconic. And I know it's the Lord of the Rings, but it's also a lot of other things. There's uh, the cell oh. swords with from the Forgotten Realms. There's tons of adventures. Deliver medicine to the sick colony. Yeah. Like there's, there's so, so many. It's, it's such a trope. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think this is a good point of this, right? It works across genres. Mm-hmm. I know as many sci-fi versions of that as I do fantasy ones. I mean, you oh, yeah. described an episode of uh, uh, Serenity, delivering medicine. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. All right, next one we're going to talk about is the siege. Um, You are defending one location from an outside threat. You are dealing with a number of obstacles and interludes, which will either assist you, hinder you, or try to oust you from the location you are defending. The shortcut of this, Helm's Deep. Yes, Helm's Uh, Deep. Helm's Helm's, Helm's Deep is the, you know, you want to see it on screen? Helm's Deep is the siege. But there are plenty of other sieges. My Probably one of my favorites is uh, Aliens. Mm Mm-hmm. Before, while they're waiting for the dropship, yep. when they're held up, that's a siege. Okay. The uh, there's a book recently I read called Spellmonger. That is that is the the novel is that the story the primary thrust of the story is that they're in a castle being sieged by like twenty thousand goblins. Yeah. With an approaching mega goblin mage that's coming to try to kill them all. Mega goblin. Perfect. Right. Yeah. Um, your typical obstacles, right? Attacks by the sieging force. That's going to be the obvious one, right? That's going to be the and that's going to be the persistent one that happens the entire time. Mm-hmm. Uh, politicking within the location, right? There's always somebody yep. inside who's not thrilled about either being inside or wants to ally with the people on the outside. Yep. Um, you know, Burke. Um, Carter Burke. Yeah. Uh, dealing with supplies, right? That's you are you are locked in. Dealing with supplies is often an issue. Sickness among the defenders, wounds, yep, dealing yep. with adequate healing and like things like that, damage to the walls, the doors, etc. All that stuff. Yeah. Um, typical interludes, right? Reinforcements arriving, Woo-hoo. right? The elves, man. Yeah, like, the elves. Show like up. that's a great interlude. Mm-hmm. Um, new information is discovered. That helps a lot usually. Yep. Yeah. Political factions uh, within the defending loca- location, like come to agreements. Yep. So maybe, you know, all of a sudden people are like, hey, this is some serious stuff. We got to band together kind of thing. Put our you know differences aside. Um, supplies discovered, supplies recovered. Like maybe you send, you know, a sortie like, out there to go exactly. deal, deal with yep. like some of the attacking forces. Exactly. The, because Helm's Deep is a very short siege. Yeah. Like you can have longer siege adventures. Yeah. Like like I mean, the city is surrounded by an army and has to hold out for weeks. Exactly. <laughs> they only had to hold out till what? The... Morning on the third day. Yeah, Thank you. Morning on the third day. <laughs> yes. When uh, that fighter guy, Gandalf. That fighter guy who occasionally <laughs> would blast that Fighter mage guy? <laughs> mage. He has some spells. He's like an Eldritch Knight. Okay. Um, what's your play experience here? There's going to be some more resource management. Um, might be in the terms of like bodies, like for manning positions, yeah. right? Could be food, could be water, those worker kinds of things. Worker placement is a thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah worker placement exactly. besides resource management. Um, political maneuvering, right? There may be like, you know, fights going on the outside walls, but you may be fighting on the inside to like get more reinforcements or to get your plan enacted or something like that. Where's our air support? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Social issues. Yeah, that's that political yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, people dealing with each other inside of the walls. I mean, you need to get along. Otherwise, everybody's going to die. <laughs> yep. Combat's going to be persistent here, right? When in doubt, combat. Yep. You know, and when things like when things get boring significant combat mm-hmm. like a wall gets breached a door breaks something uh-huh. like that themes of desperation hope against terrible odds that's a great one mm-hmm. um 
and uh, what people do in desperate situations because not all people rise to the occasion. Yeah. Somebody might break and decide that they're going to go off. Yeah. Yeah. And some of those people might rise to the occasion to really be helpful. Like, for, you can go both ways. For yeah. me, that's, um, I think it's, it's Gorman, right? From Aliens. Yeah. Gorman finally sacks up and, and, and tries to do the right thing. Yeah. Pull, uh, he pull like Vasquez buddies up with Vasquez. The, yeah. yeah. Like, like that's the rise to the occasion, right? Gorman, mm -hmm. no, like they're not making it, but Gorman's like, I'm, I'll go out with you kind of thing. Um, so basis for this framework, right? Event based adventure design, it right? It's pretty much the thing. It is an event. Like it's happening right there. Um, NPCs with personal wants and needs. You could have a relationship map depending on the yeah. complexity of what's going on inside the siege. Yeah. You could have the, and you could do this one of two ways. You can have the siege as the focus and it's mostly about defending it with a little bit of stuff going on on the inside. Or you can flip it mm -hmm. and the siege could just be the like droning background. And actually the focus is really the stuff that's going on on the inside. There's a lot of fertile ground there for great character, 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 NPC interaction. Mm -hmm. uh, you got a fertile ground there. You got a lot of like, you have some choices for how you want to set that up. Okay. Common adventures, large fortified locations with many people inside of them. Helm's deep, mm -hmm. a large portion of non-combatants. Yep. Um, those are the people that you need to protect. Yeah, absolutely. I'm um, trying to fend off a large horde of attacking um, villains. Yep. However, they are villainized in your game. Um, and that's like, that's a common siege. That is a common siege. Yep. Yeah. You could also go with the smaller siege, too, which is the uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, I would Night also. Night of the Living Dead is a siege adventure. I would also say that um, 300 is a siege. Yes, it is. Yep. Very much so. Very much so. <clears throat> with a. Very small occupying force mm -hmm. against a like inexhaustible, yeah, um, attacking force. Yes, yes. But in that case, it's not about wiping them all out, right? There's a, a different victory condition. Yep. In that case, it was um, one to buy time for the other city states to kind of rally together uh, and give them a cause to rally towards, and two. Um, one would argue from the, and I'm going strictly by the movie not slash the historical. No, not the historical record because it's because the historical Correct. record is. I'm, I'm going Frank Miller here, yeah, right? Frank yeah. Miller. Um, and the other part is to break their will. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. they are not excited about having to fight the Spartans um, in that small pass, and then less excited about fighting the Greeks afterwards. Like, mm -hmm. and again, you're right. Like it bears only slight resemblance to actually yeah. history, and I am not a history major, so I will make no claims to it, but. Take it with That's a grain of salt. The Frank Miller one's just really good. There were there were 300 Spartans and a lot of other people that were helping. The one good uh, what's-his-face movie. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to die on that hill. Some of the other ones are all right. I like Sucker Punch. Sucker Punch is good. Sucker, Sucker Punch has uh, it's a lot of... Sucker Punch is the name of what of, of the ending of that movie. That is. That's why it's a Sucker Punch. Oh, oh man. You want to talk yeah. about pain? No spoilers, God, but man, <laughs> don't expect to be leaving happy. It's not a happy movie. <laughs> <laughs> the name you were looking for was Zack Snyder, but thank you, uh, Zack Snyder. Back to Chris. All right, site-based exploration. So you are exploring a location. As you explore, you'll encounter obstacles and interludes which hinder or enrich your exploration of the location. As you do. Mm -hmm. um, the typical obstacles in a place like this are active, active defenses of the site. Mm -hmm. uh, there are also outside interlopers. Mm -hmm. There are natural hazards. There are blockages, and there are random encounters. Those are those are your, the typical obstacles. Mm -hmm. Typical interludes are information about the site. Yep. Uh, loot rooms, mm -hmm. things where you can treasure and whatnot. Sure. Safe areas where you can actually rest. Mm -hmm. uh, NPCs to interact with. 
and oddities to experience. I mean, if you haven't figured it out, we're talking about dungeons. I was just going to say, it sounds vaguely familiar. It feels like a dungeon. Yeah. Derelict are, spaceship. Derelict spaceship. Those are dungeons. That's a dungeon. Those are, those are space site-based explorations. Dungeon. Space like dungeon. Uh, the play experience. There's a, there's a resource management to it. Like, you are going to spend your resources as you go through this space looking around at stuff. Sure. Um, and then you, if you are using random encounters, you are going to be pushing your luck. Sure. Because yep. leaving can be just as dangerous as entering. Sure. There's a lot of exploration and information gathering in this site-based exploration. Uh, the basis for this framework, as I mentioned, is the dungeon. Like, locations with a variety of areas based on a theme that is wholly or partially unknown to the characters which they can explore. Mm -hmm. Seems makes sense, right? Yeah. I mean, it's so common. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I mean, we could go on and on about the dungeon forever. In fact, the next uh, script that I am writing is the dungeon is a story. So mm -hmm. we'll talk way more about the dungeon then. But, awesome. but that is the site-based exploration framework. Those are the pieces. It's and again, depending on your genre, right? That's a very common one. If you're playing D and D or DCC or something like that, site-based exploration takes up a decent portion of that yep. game. Yeah, I mean, the game is built pretty heavily around the idea. Mm -hmm. Want to do the next one? Of course, I do. Um, the next one is Trail of Clues. You're investigating a thing, and in the first scene, you find a clue, and that clue leads you to the next scene where you find another clue that leads you to the next scene where you find another clue. On and on and on and on till you reach the climax of the investigation, which is often discovering something, but also taking action for it. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want a media frame of reference for this, this is the first half of every Law and Order episode. Mm -hmm. And it is all of um, uh, Criminal Minds. Criminal Minds is a trail of clues until you understand what the serial, what, why the serial killer is. Mm -hmm. And then you use that information to capture the serial killer. And in Law and Order, that trail of clues takes you from crime scene all the way to suspect. And then suspect gets arrested. That ends the first half of the show. And then it becomes the court procedural. One could also look to National Treasure and its sequel. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, your typical obstacles are going to be acquiring clues. Now, I will argue <laughs> that um, Gumshoe does not make this an obstacle. That's true. Gumshoe does not make this an obstacle, but it makes it, um, it's not an interlude either. It, you, you are doing stuff, the, but it's not, a, it's not challenging. Like, you won't fail to get them in, in Gumshoe. I suppose I should specify, since I, since I wrote this, the acquiring clue part isn't about, isn't about necessarily finding the clues, the obstacle, but about the fact that there might be extra clues to find. Yes. Because you need the one, yep. but you yeah. could find others. You will always get the one. Yeah. yeah. The other ones make it, um, make interpretation better, mm -hmm. easier. Interpreting clues is the next part, of course, because once you have clues, you need to kind of connect them. Time pressure is a big deal, right? Um, in again, if we go back to Criminal Minds, um, the serial killer keeps killing until they're stopped or gets or disappears. So the time element is like we need to get through this trail before another body shows up. Uh, and, you know, people not wanting to talk um, legal. There could be legal traps for preventing you getting clues, yep. things like that. OK. Um, it, it is important to, I think, note that the most common obstacle in a trail of scenario is time. Yeah. Like it is, yeah. it is 90% of the things that usually pop up is like, there's a time pressure. It's not really exciting if time isn't an element. Like if it's like, well, that serial killer is going to, you know, kill five years from now and you have like five years to figure out the trail of clues, like that's not terribly interesting. No. Right. So you need to, when you're constructing one of these, you need to place time as a pressure, 
onto it. And there needs to be consequences for not uh, not acquiring clues in time. Yeah. So, like, again, if again, and I, I just because I like this because Criminal Minds does this so well. While the agents are trying to collect clues, if they make a mistake or don't collect clues in enough time, a body shows up. Yep. Right. The killer has struck again. And that is like an awesome motivator. Sure. Right. Like when you're watching the show, like they're racing because somebody's life is on the line mm-hmm. here. Yeah. And the show doesn't pull punches. Usually there's a few bodies before you get to the climax. That's like, true. And from, if you really want to like mess with people's heads, then on top of the, oh, there's going to be another body shortly. You throw on that other element of time where if we don't get him by the end of the full moon, he disappears again for like. 30 years yeah. if you're in like a supernatural situation or yep. something. And like he's gone and we won't have a chance to get him. And that's exactly it, right? Like that's the thing you have to do with the trail of clues to make it exciting is you need to establish that there is a time limit. Uh, and I'll just go off script for a second on this. This is where having a clock, the mm-hmm. countdown die, one yeah. of those things helps enforce that for the players, which creates its own set of anxieties um, which will help make this more exciting. Yeah, I didn't I didn't put that in the basis for the framework, but the clock should be in there. Yeah. yeah. Like when we talk about that. In well, fact, some games don't skip, really do that. Yeah, why don't you just skip to it real quick so we can. Yeah, talk about all. the clock. So like n- not just that, but the basis for the framework is the clock is an important one. Mm-hmm. And th- this is linear adventure design. Oh, yeah. This is 100%. very much linear. And it's important, I think, to have a what's going on document here. I yeah. Think that is a very important thing. So if you don't know what the bad thing that is happening is doing, then you have it's really hard to create that that linear adventure yeah you also need to know in that what's going on document like like how and why like what's going to happen so like let's say we're just again we're doing serial killer here like you need to know in the what's going on document like what the pathology of this killer is like how they select their targets whatever because that all is part of what the trail of clues is going to lead to and if the players you know come up with something that kind of deviates from the trail you still need to be able to kind of Keep that going. You want a really good real world example of this too? Sure. The escape room. The escape yeah, very much. A, a, yeah, very much. Exactly. Trail of clues with the timer on it. Yep. Yep. Uh, cool. Let me break down. Yeah, I'll break down a bunch of the other stuff. So typical interludes, right? Speaking with NPCs, traveling between clue locations. The reason traveling between clue locations is important is because anything else can happen there. And also, a lot of the interpersonal stuff can happen there. Exactly. Also, eats time. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> chases, combat. Right. These are things that shake things up like and they happen in law and order all the time. Yeah. You can run a person down, get into a gunfight with somebody, knock whatever. on a door and all of a sudden you hear somebody go out the window in the back. Mm-hmm. Time for a foot chase. Yeah. Um, your play experience is obviously mystery solving is going to be a big one. Clue gathering, interpretation of clues. Now, I will say this. It's been my experience that as much as you will try to have this, the interpretation part happen at the character level, most games push to the player level. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like it becomes a thing where the characters are the tool to like hoover up clues, but the players will sit around and hypothesize how they connect to each yeah, other. Yeah, I always, I, it's, to me, it's interpretation based on the players' perceptions, based on the skills of their characters. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's just interesting. Based on the information gathered from the skills of the character. It's just interesting because it is, uh, it's a thing where when you have to abstract and connect stuff, it is hard for players to stay in character when they do it. Mm -hmm. It's cool if they can, and it's cool. And if you want to do that, like if that's a thing that's important to you, set that in your um, session zero, like like Mm -hmm. get that in there. Okay. Um, Basis for the framework. It's linear adventure design. Uh, The what's going on documents. Like we talked about, it's gonna be a huge help for it. And I think we've covered so many common adventures, but problem of the week, 
any kind of mystery, all of those things, police investigations. Monster hunting is that too. Monster hunting. Like every, pretty much every Call of Cthulhu. Half a of lot them. of them. We'll say 50. Because cause here comes the next here one. Here comes the yeah. next one. The, the next one is the ocean of clues. So this is like you're investigating something. The first few scenes are going to provide a large number of clues, which can lead to a variety of potential scenes. Uh, making sense of these clues, determining the importance of the clues collected, and where they lead is the playstyle of this framework, which is what differs it from the trail. Yeah. The trail's linear. Yeah. Uh, this one is far more open-ended. Mm-hmm. Um, acquiring, acquiring clues is a typical obstacle here because you don't have to get all the clues. Like yep. you, you, uh, you have to get at least a couple, but you don't have to have all of them. Interpreting them is much more a part of the game here. Mm-hmm. Uh, time pressure is still there. Mm-hmm. That is a thing often. People not wanting to talk, choosing your path, uh, making choices based on limited information is a thing that happens a lot in these Ocean of Clue games because you don't always have all the information. Yeah, uh, I'll say another one because uh, I think most gumshoe games play a little, little bit more like this. Having the right people in the right places. That yeah, because sometimes you're like, oh, we got to go and harvest a whole bunch of clues, and you spread people out only to realize that the like, wrong person's in the wrong spot yeah. to yeah. find the proper uh, extra clue. Yeah, that would help you skip. Things. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, typical interludes are the same as the linear, mm-hmm. as the trail of clues. It is speaking with NBCs, traveling between clue locations, chases, combats. It's all the same stuff. Yeah, and I, I, I will say this: time pressure is, I think, it's still important, but I don't think it's as critical as the as the trail, because there is so much work that the characters have to do in the ocean of clues, because they can go in so many ways, and they have to talk about it and plan for it. Mm-hmm. That if you are if you put too much pressure on them time wise, right, if you turn it up too much, they will uh, narrow. They'll just naturally put blinders on and narrow themselves into a trail. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you back the time element off a little, they will want to branch out and explore it. And then again, you don't want them branching out to explore everything. So you got to like you got to tune doing the little hand turning yep, thing, turn, right? Tune you got to tune the time pressure so that they have enough time to ex- to go out and explore a bunch of things, but not so much time that they think they can run every yeah. item down. Like, there's a little modulation there. There's another neat thing that happens with the ocean, because the ocean of clues often has to do with conspiracies. Yes. A lot more, which means whatever the conspiracy is, has like a heat track or a notice track that will note that the players are doing something and they will turn on the players, yeah. on the characters, I should say. Because, you know, the, the conspiracy probably won't turn on the players they are real and the conspiracy is fake. <laughs> um, Otherwise, you're, you're in followed. Jumanji territory. Yeah, we're in Jumanji yeah. territory. So, yeah, like the, the heat, a heat mechanic is probably a good obstacle, yeah. typical obstacle that I did not put in there. Uh, yeah, that's the night. I mean, Night Spike Agents operates on that heat mechanic. Yeah. So, like, this is branching adventure design. But that's what this is. And yep. having that what's going on document helps too. Uh conspiracy is a great style for this thing. There I mean we we talked about the evil organization. Like you can reference mm-hmm. that for how to like structure some of this oh, yeah. stuff. Yeah, and we've I mean if you go through our back catalog, we've hit conspiracies multiple times. Yeah. Um there's a if you go into the back back catalog, uh you will find us um talking a whole bunch about Knights Black Agents. Yep. To uh, to flip this to a smaller mm-hmm. kind of adventure the parlor mystery is a great space for this too, oh, yeah. because you often are talking to multiple people getting different interpretations, which is that each one of those is a clue that you'll have to interpret. 
So the that is the parlor Agatha Christie yeah. mystery. Hercule Poirot type thing. The bridge, is washed, the bridge is washed out. No one's going anywhere yeah. tonight. That's another good, smaller scale <laughs> version of that. Um, there you go. So uh, let's move on to the next one. This is a one that you love, Phil. B-O-X. <laughs> B-O-X. Box. The box. Sorry, you gotta be from Buffalo to get that joke. That's a, that's a very, or that's a, a very a Buffalo. Huge box lacrosse fan. Yes. That's a very lacrosse joke. Lacrosse. Anyway, the box. One of my faves. Um, your crew, and I see you use the word crew. You didn't even use characters. Yep. Your uh-huh. crew wants to take something out of or put something into a location that is fortified in some way to prevent that from happening. You need to gather information, i.e. recon and intelligence. You need to come up with a plan. You need to execute the plan. There is a twist somewhere. You will need to adjust the plan. Um, the security of the location is your opposition. It's your main opposition. Um, and depending on how well you've done your recon, there will be one or more surprises that you did not account for. Yeah, that twist. In fact, the best of them have a twist that you can't account for through conventional intelligence. Correct. Uh, your typical obs- Your typical obstacles for this are going to be gathering information because now you are casing a thing. Right. So you want to get information, but more importantly, it's getting information without being detected. Correct. That's yep. actually the more the without being detected is actually the more important part of that. That leads into the heat. Yes. Uh, getting around security, dealing with people, dealing with how to get through the location, uh, built in protections, contingency plans, mm-hmm. um, dealing with the unknown surprises. Time is sometimes an um, element, an element mm-hmm. heat. Heat being like, if these people get wind that you are going to do this thing, they may fortify, they may move the object, yeah. they may do certain things that will prevent you from getting it. My favorite is the time one. Like, oh, the diamond is only going to be on display for two weeks. Yes. You've only got a two-week yep. window to do this. Absolutely. Um, you're, I mean, and when we talk about media, right, every Ocean's Eleven movie. Leverage. Mm, lever- the leverage. whole, yes. But how many seasons of Leverage? Five. Five Six. seasons. Six with the new season. Right. Six seasons of leverage. Uh, most of the Mission Impossible movies. The Italian job. Oh, the Italian job. So that is maybe one of the best um, of them uh, with a whole number of surprises. Right. Yes. The moving of the gold mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Anyway. All right. Um, let's see. I did typical obstacles. Typical interludes include interpersonal relationships, uh, conflicting reasons for what you're stealing. Maybe somebody doesn't want to steal it. That's the knock list from Mission Impossible 1. Yep. Once they find out what they're stealing, Luther's like, say, like, what? Say what? Yeah. <laughs> also, um, maybe you, people want to steal it for different reasons. So then, then, therefore, you get that interpersonal, like, yep. oh, exactly. who's going to betray who thing? Exactly. On. That happens. Uh, sometimes you are not friends when you come together to steal this thing. Uh, baby driver. Oh, yeah. That's a good dog. I still haven't seen it. Moves great. <sighs> Love it. That's great. Uh, outside for- forces putting pressure on you. Um, and outside forces can be completely separate from the box. Um, Think like the A-team always being hounded by the military. Yep. Um, That's Sterling chasing the leverage crew constantly. Exactly. Um, Fights happen. Chases happen. Yep. In fact, the best ones have both of those. Yes. Play experience has a lot of planning. Not necessarily anymore. Uh, Yes. I was going to say some game systems systems relieve you of this because honestly, player planning is excruciating. It, It can be, yes. It can be, but planning is part of the play experience in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's a 
a resource management thing that you can use to say that you plan this yes. way. I actually think that games that um, facilitate this uh, do it the best. I also like abstraction of this. So like if I'm doing Cortex, I will let uh, I was doing this with Senda the other day because she had to do one of um, one of these kind of missions. And I let them create an asset called the plan. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Right? Like they rolled dice and they had the plan D12. And I was like, yeah, good plan. Like, and until everything kind of twisted and fell apart, I allowed that to like base. I I let it exist on the table, not for the whole mission, but for the the mission up to what they understood. And then I was like, "Mm, the plan's not really applicable anymore. Like you're gotten off plan. Blades in the Dark, you know. Oh, Blades in the Dark has a whole subsystem for it. it, And it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, um, in terms of mechanism of uh, preparedness, preparedness is good too, right? You get uh, flash. It's flashback in forge in the dark yep. preparedness and gum in, um, nights, black agents. I don't think that's in every one of them. And, uh, I actually put for the, um, skill set for my long live the queen game. We put preparedness in for just that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, all of that stuff, um, information gathering, the planning, the execution, right? So like and it's three, there's three prongs to it. Usually it's stealth, social manipulation or technological manipulation, whether your technology is tech, like actual tech or magic. Yeah. And ideally you kind of want to hit all of them. Yes, absolutely. Like please refer to oceans 11. Yeah. <laughs> like please oceans 11 or Italian job. Both have um, every one of these. Okay. Um, your basis for this framework, right? Is fortified location. The box is always somewhere um that needs to be broken into when you start to have fun with this framework is when you start messing with what the box is where the box is mm-hmm. in the beginning if you're doing a basic one like a vault like one of those things is just a really good way thing. the bank is mm-hmm. the absolutely the most the most common one but a um but you know the um i could do a fantasy one where the box is like a bag of holding and somebody's like in like somebody's pouch or something right like the vault it's in there like all the goodies you know what you need to like how do you get inside this thing like while the mage is sleeping yeah absolutely like the the, the thing probably has a, a ward on it inside of there you might actually have to like go inside of it like, oh that's what i'm thinking yeah. like you actually have to like some dimensional space in there exactly There's probably a guardian or two in there yeah it's that's what i'm saying like that's like that's when you start messing with it and really my, uh, having fun with it my favorite my favorite box is Inception. Mm-hmm. Love Inception. Uh, another one I still haven't seen. I know. I'm oh, that's a that's a movie though. Like that's it is a movie. That's like that's a sit down. Let's all be quiet. Pay attention. This movie's deep kind of thing, but it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Common adventure is uh, stealing something. Yeah, steal something <laughs> from a bank vault or pick a, a bag of holding or pick a thing you want to steal whatever. and a place where it's being kept. That's the whole adventure. Yep. And then it just gets more interesting from there. All right. So by way of example, let's show you how using one goal can turn into three different types of sessions based on the frameworks selected. Our goal is for the players to acquire a piece of the Rod of Seven Parts that's within Castle Von Badass. Let's look at three frameworks for that. All right. Let's start with the box. This is a heist, right? So the piece of the rod is stashed in Baron Von Badass's vault below the first floor of the castle. The known obstacles, the castle watchman, the baron has a seer who can predict the future. That's a problem. The magical ward on the vault, the floors above and below the first floor off limits to the general public because, you know, this is, this is a barony. Like you can come and petition the baron. Sure, sure. Um, 
The longer the characters look into the rod, the higher the chance that the Baron forces will know that someone is going to try to steal something from the castle, hence the future seer. And the closer the Baron's forces will be closing in on the characters, identities, and base of operations. And nobody wants that. That's yeah. bad. Step one, get rid of the seer. Yeah, so, so these are the known things that need to be overcome, right? Now, it's always fun to have some unknown obstacles that can be discovered. Mm-hmm. And those are the eyeless guardians who watch the vault. That's that. Those are those are bad. The visiting mage who's studying the piece of the rod for the Baron. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a problem, bad. right? There's a twist that, that's really difficult to sure. find out about. When you find out about him, it's because you have broken in <laughs> yeah, and yeah. found him in there. <laughs> there that's He's bad. standing there holding it in his hand. Yeah, yeah. these are the unknown things that can be discovered and need to be overcome. Um, some possible interludes that go along with this. Let's say one of the character's brothers shows up in town to say hello, and they have no idea that the character's part of the crew. But they're looking for work, and we're hoping that their successful sibling could give them a hand. Sure. You want to be on the crew, <laughs> or, or do you not want them to be on the crew? Or right? there's always that one new guy. That their sibling's care. terrible. Like they're like their siblings, like a hot mess, and now they're distracted because they have to like keep their, yep. you know, gambling hot mess sibling out of trouble yep. while yep. trying to stay focused on the job. Okay, cool. Same goal, different framework, site based exploration. Oh, uh, let's do it. Okay. Uh, the Baron's castle has been abandoned for decades since everyone died of a terrible curse. Uh, it's come to light that a piece of the rod of the seven parts is somewhere inside. So our obstacles right now completely different. Uh, the Eyeless Guardians could still be there. The ghost of Baron Von Badass haunts the castle, roaming the corridors, and you will encounter him at some point. Mm-hmm. Magical defenses on the vault because, you know, nobody turned those off. No, no. Um, and in the hallway leading to the vault. Absolutely. There's a nest of sturges. I hate those things. That's Living right. in the uppermost, like the uppermost towers of the castle, skeletal servants, um, all sorts of magical mishaps, a muck running around inside this thing. 100%. Um, and your interludes, right? An undead guard who still retains some of their sentience that might be helpful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the throne room of the Baron, where his crown still rests in a wooden box. Loot. Uh, mm-hmm. Loot, or maybe it's a magic artifact. Yeah. Or maybe they don't loot. know it's n- it is or isn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, the sanctified fountain in the gardens um, of the like the Baron, um, which called he's got this fountain and maybe it's got some healing properties, yeah, yeah, does yeah. other cool things. Um, a uh, rift of dark energy in the Baron's antechamber to his room. Like, again, it's now it's now a dungeon. Yeah, it's a dungeon. Yep. Do dungeon. Same things. thing. Go get the rod. Different framework. Yep. All right. Last one. The journey. So. You've learned through a spell that the castle of Baron Von Badass is going to rise out of the Von Badass swamp where it sank 100 years ago, and that a piece of the Rod of Seven Parts is within the castle. You're not sure anyone other than your party knows this is going to happen. Now you just have to get there. In time. So the obstacles is that the castle's only going to rise from the swamp for two days. You got two days, like in two days, it's going to be up. Yep. So you have to get there in that period of time. This is going to happen in a week. You got seven days to get there and then two more days to get the thing. Yep. You estimate the trip will take six days if nothing goes wrong. Of course, something will go wrong. So the swamp is difficult to navigate. There are lizard folk tribes who don't like outsiders in their swamplands. Uh, partway through the trip, it starts raining. Then it turns into a terrible storm the following day. And, I love environmental challenges. Yeah, I know, right? And it's a swamp, so it's even worse, right? There are all manner of deadly creatures in the swamp who would love to eat the party. Of course. So then interludes. The party comes across a water sprite of the swamp who may or may not help them. Yeah. Uh, they can come across a giant willow tree. It's beautiful and covered in colorful drawings of the local lizard folk tribe that tells the story of the sinking castle. Interesting thing right there. They could make friends with the, the... They could make friends with the lizard folk tribe, right? 
they can also find a couple of other adventurers traveling the swamp who are also looking for the Baron's Castle because they're not mm-hmm. the only people that know what's going Just on. Just because they don't like outsiders doesn't mean they won't like outsiders. That's true. There you go. And uh, once you get to the castle, like you could turn that then into a dungeon if you wanted to, or you could just be like, well, the rod is there and there's nothing in the in the castle because it's been sunk in the swamp for 100 years. Yeah, it depends on what your focus is. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> it depends on what your overall story is. But yeah, absolutely, you could just segue into now you have two days to traverse this mm-hmm. yep. this site-based location. And if you don't get out in time, you sink with the castle back yeah. into the swamp. Now, wait, I'm going to go for the trifecta. Sure. Okay. Is it now a box? You ready? Yeah. You travel because you have two days to get there. Seven days to get there. Seven days to get there. You get there before it rises. It rises out. You start exploring it, but you don't find the rod. You find a time portal that takes you back to ah. before the castle was, before the curse upon the castle fell. And you have like X amount of time to steal it and get back through the time portal and get out before it sinks. So now we have a journey that leads into a box. A journey that leads to a site-based exploration oh, yeah, that, time that leads to there a box. Go. Yeah, there you go. That is the trifecta, my friend. Now we have a campaign. That's a, a whole short, arc. A short story arc, yes. Now you're digging where there's taters. All right. God, I would play that now that we're, like, I, I would play the shit I, You know, that. here's the thing. We just make this shit up when we write them down. Yeah. Like, we just literally just spit them out for yeah. examples. But now that, like, we've sat and talked about it, like, that's a pretty awesome adventure. It does sound yeah. like a pretty awesome adventure. We should write that up. I mean, I'm already writing two other adventures. I'm holding on to it. We should. That could be a Forbidden Lands game. There you go. There just, you go. I'm just saying that's like a great like D&D a, adventure. Just saying great yeah, D&D that's adventure. a solid D&D adventure. Sure is. Steal it, guys. I mean, we're going to do something with it at some <clears> point, <throat> but steal it, man. Run it for your home game. Do Somebody it. Somebody write it down. All right. While we didn't cover them in full detail, you can see there are a finite number of these frameworks. And if you play RPGs long enough, you'll see these come up over and over. Yet, uh-huh. they still remain interesting and useful. One reason for this is that a framework plus a setting makes its own unique thing. A box adventure in D&D is different from a box adventure in Knights Black Agents, but it's still a box. You can use other encounters and scenes as one-off types to help with the beat structure of your framework, right? So if you're doing like trail clues, sprinkle in some combat, a chase, something like that, so that it's not just... Get a clue, get a clue, get a clue, get a clue. That's that's boring. That's yeah. again, think about it, right? If you're just hitting one note on the piano, right? Like it, it's it becomes annoying. Switch it up. So when you switch those up, stay within the tone and genre of your game. I say that obvious, like obviously do that, but stick with it. So if you know, if you're doing your trail of clues thing, have whatever, like, you know, maybe you're doing a supernatural game have some sort of supernatural encounter to be the combat Mm. like a minion minion something like that just make it fit the genre fit the tone so that you don't jar your players Mm -hmm. out from what they're what they're actually doing like what that framework really is yeah those two ideas will give you some real flexibility when utilizing these frameworks you know when you're running or preparing your games Mm -hmm. it's good stuff and there it is a half a decade worth of thought into a single podcast segment I hope you liked it. And if you did, please give us a max star rating on whatever podcatcher you're using, along with a really nice comment. And check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash MMP. But we're not done. Next, we'll be jumping into the roundtable, a very short roundtable. But first, Bob, tell us about another show on the Misdirected Mark Network. Short round table? Short round table. Get it? I got it. I got it. Now, we want to talk about our favorite and least favorite frameworks. All right, let's do it. Uh, What what are your favorites? uh, What's your favorite? A box. I fucking love heists. I do. I I, I do. I love heists. Um, 
I know what else to say about it. I love heist movies. I like running heists in games. Like, what's I, your favorite heist adventure that you've ever GM'd or played? And played. It's a big one. <laughs> Come on, we could just go all day. I mean, I ran a whole campaign of heists, no, right? Like that yeah. was a. That's actually a cam- that's actually a campaign I would revive in a different system because D twenty modern was okay for that. Mm-hmm. I actually think that would be a cortex. Uh, yes, I think cortex would be a super great um, system what? for cortex for yes. run- for rerunning that. Um, yeah, I don't know uh, favorite heists. Yeah, uh, you know, I just I'm thinking. I mean, like the that game had uh, there was a was I think a we did a one off where they had to steal Elvis's Cadillac. I was just gonna say Elvis's car is the one that sticks out. You steal to me. it from the Country Music Hall of Fame? No, they stole it from the middle of a casino. Um, oh, you know what? I'm gonna ring my own bell. Uh, Blue Europa is yes. a convention advent- oh, adventure go. I do I do for Hydro Hackers where you have to steal a piece of Life. ice from Europa that's from Europa that's now in a casino. It's a casino heist, right? It's I've run it a few times and the ingenuity of the players, because it is a mm-hmm. very open ended heist. The ingenuity of the players has been uh, pretty amazing from uh, stealing it off the floor, intercepting it at the loading dock. And one um, crew who the airship. drove out to Green Bay and stole the airship that it was on, melted it in flight landed it in cleveland instead of buffalo and pumped it into a water system to steal like it was brilliant yeah those are probably my favorite heists that's no, only only a little bit of heat there huh yeah they were really good about it. i mean it was one of those things you know like sometimes you're just playing a pbta game and all the dice go right like all the dice go right and there's nothing like there's nothing you really can push in on too hard yeah that was them yep. and i was like I don't know what to say, guys. You keep rolling ten pluses. Like, no, I, there's not like, much. There's not much I get to do. They sometimes do that, right? Yeah. I mean, they loved it. Don't get me wrong. I don't think they were disappointed about it. Like, it was a lot of fun. Um, I was just blown away by the ingenuity of like, they're like, can we go out to Green Bay and like, what if we stole the airship? And I'm like, Hell yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, tell me more about your crazy ass plan. Like, <laughs> I'll come up with some rolls that we have to make. Anyway. That's probably my favorite. What, what's one of your favorite frameworks? Uh, site-based exploration. I love dungeons. Of course you do. Um, but I, I don't even... Why should I... I should have just... <laughs> could have just... Just dungeons? Let me just, just think about it a little Hold bit. Hold the envelope to my head. Yep. I also I also really like writing linear adventures. Sure. Because there's a, a lot of challenge in writing a linear adventure, like making it work well. But my, my favorites are definitely site-based explorations. So this is one no surprise to me. Um, one site based adventure is no surprise to me because I know how much you love fantasy and all of that. And, um, linear is not a surprise to me because w- when we talked about ERI last week, storytelling is one of your sure. pathways. Yeah. So the more that you get to kind of sculpt the story, which is the thing that linear lets you actually do really nicely. Like linear stories are linear. Um, when you run a linear plot in a game, it allows you to actually inject a good amount of story because you're kind of controlling where that, how the, you know, where the story is winding as opposed to, Hey, I've dropped a situation on the table. Go figure it out. Mm-hmm. Like it's a very different. I do that too. I used to do that with your dungeon. Oh, I know. All the time. Yep. I mean, look, we're not all well, locked into one. By the way, the area peaks is probably my favorite dungeon I've ever just designed. <sighs> I do like, I do. I do like there's the so area many, peaks. there's so many that I love, but that's probably my favorite. I, the thing I liked about the area peaks, which I thought you did really well on was, I really liked that there were ecosystems, complete and separate ecosystems inside the peaks, and that there was enough, you had enough of a map of it 
so that like when we were going to a new place, we would pass through all the familiar places, Mm -hmm. uh, which was really good. Because like I remember, like if you wanted to go a certain way in the peaks, we would go through the Cobalt Warrens into the Mushroom Cavern. Yep. Pick a few mushrooms for on our way back out. Um, to see you get high. To get high back in town. And then off to some adventure. But other times, you needed to go through the Great Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, the Wild Caverns. The Wild Caverns, where, yeah. I, bur- when I, where I once burst through a um, Cyclops. Yeah. That was the High Halls. Yeah, the High Halls, yeah. And then that way led to things like um, the Slime Cave. Yes, the Glistening Caverns. Oh, the Glittering Caverns. The glittering Bad caverns. Cave. Um, and off to other stuff. So I really appreciated that because when we were playing it, I like kind of knew like you like like we didn't have like a full map of it, but you kind of knew where you were. Yeah, because once you started going through there enough times, you understood like this is this place is a big place and you can walk through the places that you've been before. But they were also like very cool and different. I tried. Yeah. Like I I pretend because it wasn't predictable what the problem was in any one area. And if there was a problem in one area, it sure as hell didn't carry to the next one. No. Like that was like once you once you left an area you knew into a new area, you couldn't trust anything like you had to be wary of the rules might be different. Magic was weird there. I mean, there were reasons for that. You could fall into many eyes pocket dimension Mm -hmm. thing. It wasn't even a pocket. dimension. No, it was was part of the dungeon. It's part of the dungeon is a messed up part of the door and then there's no gravity. Yes. Or the gravity gravity in the middle of the room. room. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. Like. No, that was I mean, to me, that was the cool thing. And in some ways, you know, it was like, uh, you know, in a, I think you took the spirit of the um, the idea of the Gygaxian dungeon, like the deeper you get, the weirder it gets mm-hmm. like and that like you just wholeheartedly embrace because there are some places in there. There's some weird ass like some I weird ass to, stuff uh, in there. It was a funky joint. It was I had I need things to make sense in some way, shape or form, like the rules of magic have to actually be rules. Mm-hmm. So the rules of that place, every place was a little bit different, but there's a reason behind it, which is there's a dragon that's trying to become a god that is basically eating dead gods. Mm-hmm. And the and there's like thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of souls infused into the peaks, right? So one, it's a thin barrier to reality, which means magic from anywhere can leak into it. And two, um, a lot of the places started taking on aspects of the magics or the people that were in and around them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like many eyes is a it was a cluster of eyes. It, it, except it wasn't. It was just a dude that was like withered away and trapped in a in a box somewhere. But somewhere had, inside the middle of the eyes. Not in the eyes. In a, in um in a room and is in that domain. Oh. Like there's one way that you could go, but there's like terrible trap. If you don't get down there fast enough, it'll just murder you. No, I think I remember something. Yeah, like if you that. go past that, he's there. Mm-hmm. He's the thing that controls all the eyes. Because if I got my hands on, him. oh, he'd be dead. <laughs> that's not one of those that's one of those things like if you find the source of it you just kill it like yeah. he has no hit points he's just he's a withered husk essentially not then i would i would have first been like tell me the secret of the eyes so that i may control your eye the eyes many eyes was creepy and weird and just yes. very all of the above well and it was good because it's the kind of thing like for a long time in that campaign while there were many different environments they all basically operated on the same pr- principle of physics and then one day that one didn't like you wind up in many eyes section of the dungeon and nothing works the way you hey, think it will. You all didn't even go down into the lowest parts where the, um, the children of Itog were. No. And there was like a whole draconic society down there. Oh yeah. We didn't. 
Yeah, unfortunately, we never made it down there. Did we did meet the um, the dark dwarves though? You did meet the dark dwarves. I left an impression on them. <laughs> but <I'm> yes, <laughs> I don't know if you left an impression as much as ripped them apart. Uh, yeah, that, that's, them. that's probably my favorite. Like that, I like site based exploration, and that was a huge site based exploration with little site based explorations inside of it. Yeah, I mean, essentially, that campaign was it is a mega dungeon. Yeah, the campaign was. Um, we're exploring a new we're exploring a new site inside the dungeon. Yeah, it is it is my love letter to all those things like the Temple of Elemental Evil mm-hmm. and and uh, it was good. Tomb of Horrors. Tomb of, not the Tomb of Horrors. No, the Tomb of Horrors is a trap laden death death dungeon. That's not Dairy Peaks necessarily. Keep on the Borderlands. Keep on the Borderlands. The um, what's the mountain? White Plume. White Plume. Mountain. No, White Plume's like a death trap dungeon. Although it it's, is, but it's like a funhouse dungeon. It is a funhouse yeah. dungeon. That's it, a weird. It's like my love letter to that. I love that module. I have that module somewhere. All right, uh, what's your least favorite? I was thinking about this. Probably my least favorite to run is the Siege, unless I greatly abstract the fight part. Like, I don't really want to run... Mass combat? I don't want to run mass combat. So I could do the Siege, but it's going to be like... It's going to be like some competing die rolls per day kind of thing. or Like, like I guarantee you that if I run a Siege, there will be some homebrew mechanic that will deal with the outside fighting part. And then there'll be some like focused fighting parts in it. Um, I won't do the I, I won't do the mass combat. Yeah, my uh, I've run a couple of those. Like my uh, I don't do the mass combat thing. I just do the event based adventure design yep. for it. Like, well, I'm going to script what happens here, here, and here, and then let the players react to it. But I, I'll basically be like, okay, the fighting's going on. There's you're doing this thing at the end of night one. Let's make some rolls. Ah, uh, the fight is going worse for you. Like I've assigned these, like I will make something up to like to handle that. Yeah, I will do my best to make it that whatever the players did in the encounter that they're in will affect how things yeah. proceed forward. Yeah, I might do a thing where like, oh, the wall is weakened. Oh, you want to take an effort to like strengthen the wall or like divert people away from it? Cool, we're going to do that as a mission for the next day. And if I'm doing like cortex, I'll allow you to ultimately roll to attack that. Yeah, it's not the easiest thing to do. There's work. There's work to it. It's cool. It's linear adventure design in a lot of ways. It's event-based adventure design. Yeah, it's cool, and I, I like the inside stuff. It's hard, unless the system helps you with it, it's hard doing the mass combat thing. So my in, my initial instinct is to stay away from it or whip something up. Yeah, the internal stuff is actually easier in, in some ways to design because you can be like, all right, here are some of the problems that you know about in the castle. What do you want to go deal with? Because you only got so much time. You only have so, so much time, and you can't wander off. No. Like... And you could go deal with this, but this will probably get worse then. Yep. Unless you have some people that you can send to go deal with it. Exactly. That you can trust, but do you have those people? That's really the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you get into the morality play of like, look, it's desperate. Are you going to negotiate nicely with this person or are you just going to go lock them in a like closet until the siege is over? Yep. Like, What do you do with prisoners of war? What yeah. You, uh, you like, know what? Do you I don't, I don't, that? we don't do prisoners. Brings out the worst in people. It really does. It's... I will avoid prisoners at any cost because of what happens. Actually, I like it because if they do terrible things, it can really affect the morale negatively for everybody else. It can. It just if 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 with you guys, I wouldn't worry about it because I know and trust you guys. You're, in your head, you're like old gamer Phil. Yeah, like in a table of randos, I'm not giving you any prisoners. I do not need to have like I do not need to have a morality test at the table. Yeah. Some of this stuff doesn't work in one shots because it's not because consequences don't feel as bad. So one shots where the game's temporary. So you know who cares? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would people do are, people, human beings in general, are fairly awful. I would do a siege as a one shot if the siege was interesting. Like if I had come up with a cool mechanic for it, yeah. that would be a fun way to do a siege. Yeah, to me, a siege works best as a story. 
That's just yeah, I think that, I mean, the story that happens inside, like... Like the whole arc of the siege, too. Like the yeah. attacking force, the internal politics. Like it takes not one session to get it done. Uh, like it's like three or four or five. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a whole story in there. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a whole story in all of these. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which, by the way, is a good way to say that we're doing um, the dungeon as a story, which is, i.e., site-based adventure as a story. We probably could do every one of those frameworks probably as a story. We could. Yeah. We may. Like, well, what is the story? How do you... Uh, coax the story out of it like yeah. an actual what feels like a, a story that we'd see on tv or yeah, the like, box. reading a book like the, like i that. mean the box very much has a story mm-hmm. there's and a thing about the thing about making whatever the box is personal to one of the characters that's how you get the best stories out of those uh yeah, yeah. both oceans 11, 11 and, and every episode of leverage ever and um the italian job and the italian mm-hmm. job because that's a revenge story yep. yeah the italian job is a is a heist but it is the italian also... job is two heists Yes. And really, the first heist could be your session zero. Yeah. Like, look, this person betrayed you. Your dad died. Your uh, your future father-in-law died. This guy who was your friend betrayed all of you. Took, put your, you, took, took your stuff. Took your stuff. Bought all the things that you said you were going to buy. Yep. Like, yep. it's a revenge heist. It is a revenge heist. Uh, all right. So we talked that's uh, my, my yeah, your least favorite. favorite. Uh, my least favorite of the ones that we talked about is probably the Trail of Clues. I'm not a fan of the Trail of Clues adventure. Because it's kind of boring. Given the choice between the Ocean of Clues and the Trail of Clues, I will always take the Ocean of Clues. Yeah, the Trail of Clues is a nice, easy framework. It's it's probably the easiest framework to use. The Trail of Clues is a great one-shot tool. It is. If I'm running a con game for a mystery, mm-hmm. you're getting the Trail of Clues. If I'm running a campaign with a mystery in it, you're getting the Ocean of Clues. You can do a nice Trail of Clues as a couple-session arc, too, or even a three-session arc, mm-hmm. especially because... At parts of the trail, then you can put twists. Yeah. Which is a thing that I think gets missed sometimes, is like the twist in the trail of clues. Oh, I mean, I, I like, so I'm against red herrings, but I like when, I like when the clues lead to one conclusion, but when you add in this clue, it's actually the other conclusion. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like it is this, but it's it could be this, or or we thought it was this, and it's actually this. One of my favorite versions of that is to change the motivation. So the clues all lead to one character, and you're like, oh, th- like that NPC is clearly the bad guy. And then you pick up like another clue to discover that the NPC's motive is um, morally conflicting. Like, oh yes, they totally assassinated that person, but they were being forced into it, or they were stopping an unknown evil. Yep. Or, like that's a very uh, very TV thing. Oh, I love it. I love it. It's great. It's a great one. Well, it, that's that's the the castle did that over and over again. With yeah, where where uh, Beckett's mom was concerned, the murder of Beckett's mom. I actually didn't watch that show. I'm gonna follow. I'm just following along with. Sure. Yeah, that's, it did that constantly. But that's a really good one because what it does is it doesn't invalidate the clues that you acquired. No, no, no. But it recontextualizes them, and mm-hmm. that's a that's a really nice way to do a twist where the players are like, ah, it is what we thought it was. It's not why we thought it was. Yes. Like that's a um, that's a really nice way to do it where the players don't feel like they got um, shafted mm-hmm. because if you're like oh it all points in this direction but now this clue like changes the who it is you know now they're like well that you know like maybe they're okay with it maybe they're not but I like that there are a lot of cool things you can do with the trail clues it's just it's not standing alone by itself is not the most interesting thing for me no like I think it's a perfectly great structure it's just not for me what i don't like about what what i have trouble with it and i and as a player as well is um because it is a to b to c because it's linear Mm -hmm. 
for a mystery, it doesn't really let you be imaginative about collecting clues or whatever because it just way harder to make let the players be imaginative yeah you gotta you're just like you're funneling them through the clues because really what they're trying to get to is collect all the clues to understand what's going on so that when you reach the climax you know what to do yep and that's okay and again if i'm running something with a time constraint like a one-shot con game it's a great structure for that because it's like i'm gonna funnel you through a bunch of like like encounters and stuff so that you pick up clues and start to figure this thing out, and then we're going to arrive at our set piece encounter. There, there are some Call of Cthulhu adventures that are trails of clues with some extra clues that you pick up along the way. That if you don't pick up those extra clues, you can't actually solve them at the end. So that's I, that's a bad design. I don't know that I think that's a bad design. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fitting for Cthulhu. Because you miss that you miss those clues along the way, but you're still like walking down the trail. You just miss the other thing. I guess now, I, Tim, it might be a bad design if there's only the one place that you can get it. Now, yes. if you miss it two or three times... That's different. Yeah, like, well... That, that is different. Um, but if you're just like... I, it, find, I find it interesting, though, that we... I do find it interesting that we, as game designers and players, would identify, like, you miss it once, and you only had the one chance at it, then you fail, versus I missed it three times, and that's okay. So here's the thing. It has to do with randomization, right? Mm-hmm. Dice are fickle. They are. So if I only get one shot at a thing, and... I've played Call of Cthulhu, right? If you're playing starting Call of Cthulhu, your numbers aren't hot no. to begin with. So if you're playing Call of Cthulhu, your numbers if, are you're only competent in so many places. Right. So for instance, if we're gonna spend a six hour adventure, four hour adventure, we're gonna spend a four hour adventure, and in scene two, if the thirty-three percent chance I have of finding the thing that will actually allow us to um quote win the adventure mm-hmm. um is the only time it's gonna come up. I'm not thrilled with that. If there are three separate encounters where I could find it and I fail every time, that's on me. Yeah, Dice are I, still fickle. I get it. But like psychologically, 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 we can do it that way. Like yes. I'm fine with that. Psychologically, it feels better. Psychologically, feel better about it. Yes, <laughs> I feel better about it because I would because if you told me if we got to the end of the adventure and you turned around and told me. Oh, back in the second encounter? I never tell you. <laughs> right, but if you did, right? If you were like, oh, back in the second adventure, if you had just opened that bookcase, you would have found the thing that would have killed the monster instead of it just, you know, tearing you all apart while you, you know, um, just futilely tried to destroy it. Uh, but you missed that role. I'd be like, that sucks. Like, stupid design. But if you were like, look, three different times in this adventure, here, here, and here, that thing was there and none of you picked up on it. None of you made the role for it. Be like, man, dice were conspiring against us. I would feel worse about that, honestly, because I had three chances in it and I didn't get it. Well, that's to me, that's like, well, the system screwed me, but also it's Cthulhu. So I was, you know, there's a good chance I'm getting screwed anyway. There's, on also, this. there's also the potential that you were not, not the right character to be looking for that thing. Right. True. But single point failure in design single point it failure feels bad. It feels bad. I feel like single point failure where it in- inhibits the story from moving forward is bad. Yeah. I, I, I don't mean, it, think that's the worst design choice ever. I'm, I'm sure everybody in the internet's like, you know, you're wrong, Chris, and that's fine. Imagine that, imagine, just imagine that episode, Star Wars Episode Four in the trench, Luke, third level pilot, has to roll to, has to roll in a well, D20 style thing to put, to put the torpedo that's, in that's, the tube. That's why that's, that's like, a, that's the difference between role playing games and a movie. Correct. Because <laughs> you'd be like, well, Yavin was cool. Like, but after Yavin, like, we were all on the run for the rest in of the In the role-playing life. game version of that, yeah. he's going to put the shot down the exhaust port 
The role is to see if he gets the shot down the exhaust port before they hit fire and blow up. Oh, in a good base. in a good game design, it is. Sure. But like, Bob's right though. That's the yeah. Well, that's the stakes roll. Yeah. yeah then he rolls for damage. Doesn't do enough damage to blow up the core. He rolls a one on his damage, and it's like, well, <laughs> totally sinks the shot. Rolls right. like three ones. So now that we're way off topic, well, let's let's uh, let's rein it back. And actually, I don't think there's anything else. But nah. But but you folks at home. I would, I'm curious as to, after hearing this discussion, what are uh, some of your least and most favorite frameworks and uh, which adventures or scenarios that you played were those in? And posing the question, what frameworks did we not talk about? Yeah. Because yeah. we need some more of them. We don't think we got them all. No, so, so some of you are listening to this and have a framework in mind. Yep. Tell us the, the framework. Siege. We didn't do the reverse siege. Right. Tell us the framework and tell us. That's the assault. The assault, yeah. Tell us the framework and tell us the, uh, give us an example in media. That'll help us. Help us a ton. Assault is absolutely one of them. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, Bob, you want to move us on to the conversation? I think corner? we should go to the conversation corner. Bob, would you like to start us off with your I one I would love to start us off. Thing. I guess I don't get to finish talking. <laughs> it's fine. Go ahead. He's excited. Proceed. Proceed. Very excited. Uh, so I want to talk about the Orville today. The okay. Orville. And I need one of my people in my group of friends to watch the show so that we can talk about it. Witness me. <laughs> because Shiny the Pink. Orville is the Star Trek show that we didn't know we had. Okay. I think some people knew. This is Seth MacFarlane's love letter to Star Trek. Seth MacFarlane um, is executive producer. He wrote a bunch of the episodes. He directed some of the episodes. He stars in it, obviously. Um, and... They hit like all of the tropey things, you know. There's a lot of very Trek stuff sure. in this show. You've got your classic stuff like we have a an artificial life form that's endeavoring to understand the biological uh, uh, functions, biological way of life, and how these these organic beings interact with each other. Isn't Norm Macdonald a blob in this? Norm Macdonald is is the voice of uh, of a blob named Yafit. That character's fun. Um, <laughs> It's the the it starts out a little rough for me because it's Seth MacFarlane. So when he put this show together, on top of having all of your uh, great sci-fi type stories and Trek-like plot lines and stuff, he also wanted to inject a certain level of humor. The problem with it is that the humor he chose to inject in it. Um, one, it's like a low, lowest common denominator humor a lot it's of times. very much Seth MacFarlane humor. It's very much, it's dick jokes. I've seen the first two episodes of the Orville. Toilet humor. It's pretty good. Um, and then the other thing he does is there's a lot of anachronistic stuff, right? Um, and there's a lot of that stuff just feels out of place to me. There's a couple of really good episodes where it's like, this is an awesome sci-fi story. This is a very Trek story. And then they have some kind of 20th, late 20th, early 21st century thing that sticks out like a sore thumb. Like the joke that they make is, is, is something, you know, or they use modern, our modern day music a lot of the times. Um, there's a whole episode that's got a bunch of Billy Joel in it. And it's like, ah, uh, it just feels out of place. Is it better if it's the Beastie Boys? Is that what you're telling me? Intergalactic? No. Planetary? Planetary? Intergalactic? No. It's, there's a, there's sabotage a, in the Abrams yeah. movies. There's you know, a level of, we're 400 years in the future, and yet somehow, not just one person who maybe is like a fan of the history of Earth, but like half the crew makes references to stuff from 400 years ago sure. that you shouldn't be 
Yeah. You know, there's an episode where 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 they they do a thing with a Twinkie, and it's like, how do you even know what the fuck a Twinkie is, <laughs> right? Like, okay, but if you get past some of that stuff, and it starts to slowly ramp down the the amount of that stuff and its impact on the on the episodes kind of starts to diminish as you go through the show. When you get to season three, that's the newest season. First of all, they got a new budget for season three. I bet it looks great. Holy crap, the difference. The first episode of season three, which I just watched today, is um, what would be the equivalent. I think it's like 90 minutes, the equivalent of an hour and a half um, movie or two hour TV slot. Sure. With commercials, you know, you cut it down to whatever. Because mm-hmm. like typical 42 minutes for an hour. That yeah, kind of thing. makes sense. Um, and they're they're doing a refit to repair damage and upgrade the ship after a big battle that they had where, where a lot of damage was taken. So you get a lot of panoramic shots, a lot of panning across the, the, the ship exterior, a lot of sweeping, you know, shuttle looks and, and stuff like that. Um, very Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, shots or that episode of lower decks where they make fun of it or that episode of lower decks where they make fun of it i love um, that episode <laughs> so you get a lot of that stuff um you get to see like here here's a great example of the budget in the first two seasons the the quantum drive the warp core equivalent all right it's this big disc on the wall with different segments and they kind of rotate different colors and light intensity as this thing, like it, when it starts to ramp up and go faster, mm-hmm. like the intensity goes up. And it's just a circle on the wall <laughs> with segments. Now it's a three-dimensional sphere with yeah. like computer graphics. It's fucking gorgeous. Okay. Um, so you have new budget, which they go through. Um, major content warning. The entire episode heavily talks about suicide and the fallout of it and the impact on, on, on the people around a person who commits who suicide departed from the and dick the jokes. philosophy. Yeah, right. Like, and there's still some of that humor in the episode, but it's it's like the tone of it is a little different. Right. Um, that that actually that episode um, is an amazing episode. Um, but yeah, it's the show is really good. It's really good. Um, you can they, hear it in the passion of Bob. Yes. Voice. They also get um, there's a whole bunch of Star Trek alumni. Um, the ship's doctor is played by Penny Johnson, I believe is her name. Uh, she's got a hyphen in on the end of it now. She got married or something. Um, but she played, um, Cassidy, Cisco's girlfriend. Cassidy Yates. Yep. Captain um, Cassidy. Yates. Yes. She, uh, is the ship's doctor. Um, Robert Picardo makes a cameo in one episode and then he's in, he wished, uh, heavy. Wished me a happy birthday. Yes, he did. Um, oh, he's in nice. another episode that in that same episode that Picardo is in, the the actor who played uh, Doctor Flox is in. Oh, I love I I love I I love so those two that are, actor. Um, uh, Marina Billings, Sirtis Billingsworth. What is it? John Billingsley. John Billingsley. Thank you. You're welcome. I couldn't remember. Uh, Marina Sirtis is in an episode Detroit. as a teacher on the ship. Um, Jonathan Frakes directed at least one episode. He just turned seventy. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. He's great. So seventy years old. There's a lot Riker. of, and, and then there's character actors all over the place that play aliens and and, and different sure. stuff like that. Um, uh, F. Marie Abraham, who played uh, in, uh, he was in Insurrection. He was the uh, the alien getting his face stretched. Um, so yeah, there's there's all kinds of character actors where I can recognize the voice, and I'm like, I bet you that's like Tony Todd or you know or whoever you know. Um, so it's it it's got a lot going for it. 
And like I said, when I when I first started watching it, I'm like, oh, the dick jokes. You know, it's like they just like, eh, you know, it's like you I get with Seth MacFarlane. It's Seth MacFarlane. You know, like you got to take the good with the bad. But they recognized as they progressed through, like we don't really need this to be as prominent. And they they toned it down, and and there's some really really good episodes. Yeah, your comedy can be your your like. Your secondary beat or your tertiary yeah. beat instead of your primary. And there's beat. moments where some of the stuff that I said that I feel is super anachronistic, um, where you actually can make it. There's an episode where they find a time capsule from 2015 on Earth, hmm. right? And I, I, they find it on Earth. It's from 2015, and this town decided they were going to put a time capsule together. And so this guy is a historian, Tuvok Tim Russ, Tim Russ, also guest stars. <laughs> So he's taking it to this museum on this other planet as, you know, like part of this exhibit on Earth history. And so there's a shit ton of references to our current day, including these these aliens, the 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 one of the main characters on the ship, um, him and his partner end up getting addicted to cigarettes because they've never seen a cigarette before. Like, and they're holding like. The, the 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 aroma is quite pleasant, and they start smoking cigarettes. So it turns out their species is highly susceptible to nicotine addiction, and hilarity ensues. That's funny, and that's that was great. I mean, terrible for you, but funny. Yes, I mean that's the kind of way that you mix in the modern, the, the, I guess the present day. It's funny in twenty twenty two. I don't know if it would have been funny twenty years ago. I mean, yeah. twenty years ago, a doctor would have prescribed. No, I'm just kidding. That's like 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. Doctor prescribed but yeah, for you. So the Orville. Um, I highly recommend it. It's um, 12 episodes first season, 14 episodes second season, and I forget how many episodes are in the third season. I just I watched the first one. But again, I think it's well worth it if, you, if you're if you a Trek fan um, because there's a lot of meat on that Trek bone there. Um, so the, the thing that I learned from this conversation, because I already knew about the Orville and I knew it was pretty good, is that Phil apparently talks to a lot of like Star Trek B and C list actors that wish him a happy birthday. No, no, that was that was the present that um the misdirected mark community got me where those oh. remember my my birthday uh, what's the it videos? called cameo the cameos it's a service where people usually celebrities did i see that offer their i don't know if you saw them was there, I was, buddy. no i looked at i was watching them i don't think you saw them but i was watching them when we were at texas day brazil oh okay yeah you were there yeah but yeah the the community um the community um i had no under I, under the i had no idea that you had done that under the watchful that hand that. of the queen Community came together and got a bunch of um, cameos from Star Trek actors wishing me a happy. I'll show them to you sometime. The Robert Picardo one is hilarious. It's fun. It is. I mean, they're all good. (laughs) I have a um, not a visitor. um, Oh, the um, the the young woman who plays Detmer from um, Discovery. Yeah. Tim Ross. um, Robert Robert Picardo, I said. um, And Q. That's fun. John Delancey. Yeah, John Delancey. Yeah. So they're and they're they're just they're uh, they're blessed. But the Robert Picardo one is like yeah, he tells a story in it, and it's it's good times. Put his hand on the seat of power. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, that's enough of me uh, sure. uh, of of praising the Orville. Well, tell me about for all mankind. For all mankind, I've talked about it um, probably a year ago because I, each season comes out. It's on Apple TV. Not a lot of you have it, but if you mm-hmm. have it for Ted Lasso, you are. You should watch God, this. Do I love Ted Lasso. What's that? Say, God, do I love Ted Lasso? Oh, I know. I can't wait. But For All Mankind is an alternate history sci-fi show that starts in the late '60s with the premise that the Russians are the first people on the moon, 
and each season covers a decade. So except for the first one, which covers a little more than a decade, but the first one goes through the 70s. The second season goes through the 80s. And this most current season, which I just finished, goes through the 90s. Uh, Did Kurt Cobain kill himself? They don't actually talk about that part. They do actually mix parts of history. It's interesting because it's like a really relevant cultural thing that happened, isn't it? It is. But so the premise of the show is, right, that a lot of culture gets changed uh, because NASA lives up to the dream of technologies from NASA will start to change the world. So in the 80s season, there are the first electric cars. Oh, that's cool. And there are cell phones by the 80s. There are video phones by the 90s. They're big. They're big. But still, it's cool. But each so in the beginning, the first season is like all about getting back to the moon. The second season is about a colony on the moon. Wow. And the third season is about getting to Mars. And uh, it's a high drama show. Uh, Big cast of characters. Each season kind of adds some characters and loses some characters. Like some people don't make it. Some people get added on. Um, And it jumps like 10 years at a time. So like all of a sudden, certain characters are now much older, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a really good it's a really good drama overall. It's if you like alternate history, it's excellent. That sounds pretty cool, actually. And it Apple threw a substantial amount of money at it. The uh, graphics and special effects for it are top notch, like movie quality, movie quality graphics and special effects. And Ronald D. Moore, mm-hmm. who did a whole bunch of Star Trek episodes, is like the lead writer for this series. And it's it's really good. And it it like in the 90s one, it goes beyond just the space race stuff you get into um some politics uh and what they do is they do an interesting combination of they keep certain historical events and and i don't want to give anything away but they adapt other historical events uh and change the context of them so like there's a thing that has to do with like like it would have been the nixon tapes but it's not good but the whole course of nixon's trajectory changes but they wind up working something like that back in there's another thing I can't even talk about because it, it has to do with the finale of the third season, but it is absolutely um, an, an adaptation of another historical event that takes place. Um, that's a huge shakeup to the end. It, it's just it's a really solid uh, story. If you like The Martian, if you liked Apollo 15, like any of those style shows, you will love this show. Yeah, The Martian's great. Um, and the cast is excellent. The stories are good. I thoroughly enjoyed like this. This show's a treat. And um, easily is the number two reason why I will keep my Apple subscription. I mean, Ted Lasso being uh, the first one, because that show, man, it's fantastic. That shows that shows exactly what I needed when it showed up. (laughs) But for all mankind, and I know Evil John is a big fan of the show, but I don't think too many other people have watched it yet. I I, I probably will. And I think like you're, you're missing like a real gem here. It's like tucked in there and it's really like, again, it's on Apple. So it's not like everybody has it, but man, if you have it, um, how long are the seasons? Uh, they are so out They're about hour length shows and they're about 13, 12 to 13 episodes a season. Okay. Not, not insurmountable. Yeah. Not a huge lift. Yeah. And they just finished. So the last, um, the finale for season three dropped so you now from this point can binge you could binge through solid cool yeah anyway that's me chris i mean talk about the role-playing one because none of us did i'm gonna be a nerd now back to the role-playing as if we as if bob's 
<laughs> 10 minutes on the Orville and mine on For All Mankind wasn't nerdy I mean, enough. I'm going to be yeah, like, get us back on the RPG tabletop role playing game nerdy yeah, yeah. again. Uh, I don't know if any if, if you've been living, a, I guess, under a rock. Even and, I'm aware of it. <laughs> yeah, I know. They announced uh, 1D&D, which is the next iteration of the Dungeons and Dragons. Let's just call it a new version. It's not a new version. It though. is a new version. It's really not. Do you have to buy new books? Uh, you don't have to. You don't have to. Are there new books? There will probably be. It's there new there books. will be new books. Well, it's a making, new version. Well, they've been making new books all along, right? No, but either like if you want to play Dungeons and Dragons right now, and you actually want to play like the game in the most updated way possible, like you have to have things like Tasha's Cauldron of Everything and a few other books like that, because those are the books that like everybody's playing with these days, and they have updated rules. Sure, and so, soon to me, those are the new rules. <laughs> right, but soon you'll have to have the new player's handbook or um, access to it in some. Sure, form. but I'm not gonna call it like it's it's call it for what it is. It's a new edition. It's not a new edition though. Like the rules, it's a new edition. If three fives an you edition, you with me or let Phil, me do my one thing, man. It's, it's not like they're gonna they're going from four to five. I didn't, or I didn't talk over. Four. I don't talk over your stuff, man. <laughs> I'm just saying. All right, I'm just. I so mean, it's okay. If, if you want to, if you want to actually look into the thing and read it, which is why I'm I'm talking about this right now. So those who don't listen to the Gnomecast where me, Jared, and Ange and Lori talk about it, um, or you're not listening to Merwin and Teos talk about it because you don't want to spend the time. There, there are some rules updates. They're cleaning up some things that were messy, but you still play the game the way it's been played all along because they're not like making a new rule set. They're just collating all the things that they've put together over ten years. So if you're tired of looking at 27 different books for all the rules that you want, there'll be a nice new book that you can have or a new set of rules that you can have that collate everything that's been put out there beforehand. So there's nothing new rule-wise. It's all existing there, rules it just is, collate. It is an updated rule set. Like they're fixing some of the things that are messed up. So for instance, one of the one of the primary ones is like they're making inspiration more um they're giving away through the mechanics to actually get inspiration. Like that's a rules update. Like inspiration still exists, it still works the same way. But anytime you roll a 20 because it's inspiring. You get a point of inspiration if you don't have it. Oh, no, that's neat. Right? Uh, they fix the test thing. So, like, there's the ability roll, the skill, the ability roll, the attack roll, and the saving throw. They used to be three different things, and they worked sort of differently. Um, a 20 and a saving throw or an ability uh, roll or a 1 was not an automatic success or a failure. Now, all three of those things are just called D20 tests. They are uh, 20s and 1s, automatic success, automatic failure. Um, they're, and they cleaned up the rules like it can't be impossible. Right. Like there has to be a, like you can't just be like, I'm going to shoot this thing around the corner. Look, I rolled a 20. Like there has to be some well, plausibility. There are, there are there. actually rules like for yeah. like line of sight and things like that, too. Yeah. Right? Like those those rules all still exist. Yeah. Um, you can use everything that you've had before if you want to with from fifth edition with this new one D&D initiative that they're putting out there. And from the Origins playtest, which, by the way, they're putting out a PDF every month with playtest material for this new game for people to then talk about, which is a good chunk of what they did with D&D Next, uh, you can comment, play with it, and it all works with the 5th edition stuff. Because like the, the first one, which there's a really nice long hour-long YouTube video with Jeremy Crawford talking about that particular Unearth Arcana, Unearth Arcana which is the rules mm -hmm. update, and they'll be doing that every month. So you get the lead designer talking about the rules and what they're doing, yep. which is really cool. Like I, I think that's... Yeah, it's a great video. I really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. Um, but it's not... I. I mean, there'll be a new book that you can buy, but you don't have to if you don't want to, if you don't want to play with those rules. Like, you can just, if you want to buy just pieces and whatnot, I'm going to, because Chris Perkins said he's going to rewrite the Dungeon Master Guide to actually be a usable book. And I'm curious as to see that, because yeah. I think the Dungeon Master Guide's a terrible book. 
They, they, to be to be more clear, the the goal of the rewrite of the Dungeon Master's Guide is to make it easier for new GMs to pick up the game and run one. Yeah. Because right now, a new GM doesn't get a lot of advice in that book on how to run. Correct. Games. It's bad. Yeah. For that, uh, the uh, the the other I think biggest changes. They're putting feats back in the game, but that's not really that big of a deal because everybody's using them anyway. Like, I don't know very many groups that aren't using them. Like, I'm the one that doesn't like them. Uh, I like the reasoning behind it. I like the fact that they're changing a lot of the stuff that you get at first level from being your race. Race is still, in the, I think they'll change that eventually, but race is still a thing that they're using. They shifted, like, your stat bonuses to backgrounds. Yeah, I think that's... They shifted out a lot of that stuff to backgrounds because your background and how you grew up your origin, essentially, is what it is they're calling yeah. it, is really where you should have gotten all of that stuff anyway, right? It's a yeah. much better narrative narrative space. I think there's still work that needs to be done on that area. Oh, yeah. I've, I've read, I mean, I've been reading Twitter. There's still work to be done. I think they're trying to do that work. Again, it, we're still in playtest phase, so none of this stuff is final. Correct. None of this stuff has been printed in a book. Um, hopefully this is, like, going in the right direction with all that. Yeah. The, like, 1D&D, that's the rules thing, whatever. Now that they have D&D Beyond, they're making a virtual tabletop using the Unreal Engine 5. And I saw, like, the pre-alpha. I'm not, like, it's pre-alpha. I don't care. If if they can pull off part of what it looks like, it'll be great. Furthermore, the digital physical bundles are now a thing. Like, when I go and drive, buy my Dragonlance book, I will also get a code for D&D Beyond to have my books. So what do you think? I don't want to go too far into this. First of all, I'm only half busting your chops about the version thing. I think it's fine to make a new version. I think they're afraid to say it's a new version. I think it's okay to be like, hey, this game's like seven, what is it, seven years old? Ten. We're it, ten years old. Eight we're years incrementing old it. Like, we don't have to call it D&D &D 6, but it's definitely not D&D &D 5 anymore. It's like 5-5. Five, five. It's just, yeah. It's fine. Like, don't be afraid of it. Well, it's fine. They updated the rules. If they were going to do that, they should have said that with Tasha's. That's why. Because all the rules from Mordenkind's Tome of Foes and Tasha's... Uh, where they introduced like the, the, how the new origins work and how you can play certain monstrous races now and how the the um, not just like here's a subclass sure like there's straight up rules changes in Tasha's that so, change how the core like book stuff works right so say you're me right who owns no 5.0 sure. 5.0 stuff I am better off at this point waiting for D&D &D 1 to come out than to backfill a player's handbook Tasha's all of that stuff and then get one D&D &D when it really, comes out, Really, what right? you're better off doing is find somebody who has a D&D &D Beyond subscription so you can just access their books. No, no, I know, but I'm saying, like, I'm yeah, saying when it's time... your own stuff. Right, like, it's when it's time, I should get the new, the new yeah, core for, books. for the core books. I mean, you can still buy the adventure stuff, the sure, setting the stuff. Sure, the adventures will all Because work. it'll all, it's it's backwards compatible, sure. or compatible, and then they're designing it for one D&D &D anyway. Look, man, that's right. the thing I love about my, like, that's the thing I love about the PS4, right? Like, or the PS5, right? PS4 games still work. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. it's okay. It is okay to increment something. It, like, I get it. Like, they don't want to start a panic or another, you know, like, an yet another Pathfinder. Sure. Like, I get it. The, the rules aren't, like, I would be the first one to call it out if I thought the rules were, were highly divergent. Well, that's, to me, this is what, like, 3 and 3 5 felt like. Sure, except instead of in the middle of the night dropping a new book on us, yes, they're, giving they us they're giving us two years of notice. Listen, they not only give you two years of notice, they give you ten years of a stable version. That's I don't correct. think you can... And look, they're just building on top of that stable version. Also, and, also, look, we have to acknowledge this. Watsy's a company that sells books. It needs to sell books. And if the core rules and the supplements for all the rules have diverged far enough from, you know, like from point of origin... It is okay to issue a new yeah, a new set of books. It's messy. 
and, right yeah. and but and people will go buy those that already have a player sample. That's, that's what I mean. Right. right. Like yeah. the, the game right now, the state that it's in book wise, right. it's messy. But look at I mean, honestly, look at Goodman Games, man. They don't even change the rules. They wrap a different cover on that DCC thing and everybody buys one. Yeah. I mean, we're so, talking in, a, in an order of magnitude less. Sure. Numbers, but so. I mean, but I mean, like. There are people who play DCC who have like seven copies of the rule book. It's the same rule book inside of it. All they did was put like seven covers on yeah, it. I'm, I'm so you. whatever. To I, me, that's to me that's silly. Like to, I mean, that's collect, me, that's collector the, stuff. The other thing that really stands out with this is the the same thing that stands out with D and D next is they're giving you this playtest material saying this is what we think we're going to change and how we're going to change it. Try it out. See what you think. Give us feedback, and that's the important part. Because I've been seeing a lot of the whiners on the internet who say, oh, I don't like that. I'm going to keep playing it the way I've been playing it. Are you going to turn around and tell them, I don't like that change? Because if enough people go, oh, no, that's, you know, like, I get why you think you want to make that change because you think people are playing that way now. Because that's how some of that's being driven. But if people all overwhelmingly go, no, we don't like that. I believe that they will honestly take that feedback and go, okay, then we won't make yeah, that I change. Think, I, I don't think they have any intention of alienating their player yes. base. So yes, <laughs> you should you should not you should not give up on the playtest. On like you should wait to see what the final rules are to decide whether that's going to be your thing or if you're yeah. going to choose to stay behind. It, it's just funny because when you say five point five, because I'm like, yeah, that book already came out. It was called Tasha's Call. Exactly. Yeah. Like that book already exists. Yeah. So right. <laughs> But I mean, this is so, but I mean, this is like another point increment on the five, you know. And I was like, when it came out, I saw him like, well, that's your 5.5 rules right there. I I think the thing that I find more interesting is there are two things with this virtual tabletop thing. One, it's going to be a a, um, serious blow to um, to roll 20. I mean, if you look at the percent, if you look at the the pie charts for who plays what on that platform, it's going to, it's going to be a revenue killer for them they're mm-hmm. they are going to they're going to experience um a significant disruption yeah when this I'm, occurs i am not a fan of the idea that all ships rise with dnd that's not how this works well it, it's not even that all ships rise with dnd what dnd is doing mm-hmm. is they are making dnd into apple yeah there's a they're going there, to create a vertical, closed vertical integration they're going to close the ecosystem right. they're going to close the ecosystem out um and you now, know now it's because they're not monsters in a lot of ways. Like they're a business. They want to make money. I, sure. get, I get it. They have, the, it's their IP. Like, yeah, no, it's their business. They're like, look, um, we're not going to tell you that anything you bought previously on those other platforms, you can't use anymore. Like it's yours. You keep it. Like it's always sure. going to be there in perpetuity. Yeah. It's just in the future. That's probably not going to be the case. All that stuff's going to go through the D and D beyond ecosystem. And the question will become is at some point, will they just depart from like, if they're going true closed ecosystem, DM's guild will break off. Well, and, and get the pulled DM's in. guild just go on to... That's what's going to happen, yeah, right? Like, I mean, it'll become a closed ecosystem where... You can expect that, yeah. Where Watsy... Uh, so what's going to happen... And again, this is... I mean, and again, this is Watsy's decision, right? And I don't know, because I think I, I... I don't know for sure. This is, this is tertiary information that I'm throwing out there. Like, there's some contract in place that that won't happen for a while, but all it takes is them to break it off open up their own marketplace on D&D Beyond for that, and then just shave off 5% for uh, from what they're sharing with the, the authors. Like, like instead of instead of giving people what it's like 70-30, I think it is, if they go 75-25, everybody goes to the DMs. Or everybody everybody goes, goes to D&D Beyond, everybody right? Everybody goes. I don't know. Like. That's a, that will also be a disruption. It, it'll be, I think, less of a disruption. 
I, I don't want to say less. It'll still be a pretty significant disruption to one one um, to what is it? OneDrive. Yeah, OneDrive. It'll, it'll be a significant disruption to them, but they are basically the default house for everything else in role playing. They'll probably be OK. I, I'm very interested to see what happens to Roll20. I think they'll stay afloat because I think there's still enough players. But man, when you look at the pie charts of who plays what on that platform, yeah. when you take that chunk that's D&D away... I just don't know who... Uh, I don't know how many... Like, I don't know how their business is structured, right? Like, I don't know how many employees they have. I don't know what uh, their revenue streams sure. are. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Are they making money hand over fist in profit or are they just barely squeaking by? I mean, if right? they're barely squeaking by, it's terrible. Well, they're done. Yes. Right? But if they're making money hand over fist... Then then it's good, but it... But it will cut in, right? It will mm-hmm. cut into development. It'll cut into all those things. Because I use Roll Twenty still pretty often. Yeah. Like I, I, I pop in there every once in a while. I don't, I don't remember the last like big developmental update they've done to Agreed. their platform. Oh, uh, like what was it? Sometime during pandemic, they did the dynamic lighting thing or something. Where yeah, they... but okay. No, I'm with you. But I mean, yeah. again, it'll just like again for all of you guys who you know um, shit on Mac. Not you guys, but like for all you Apple haters, like that's exactly what that's exactly what WotC and D&D is about to become is the Apple of role playing games. Okay, Cortex tried doing it first. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think D&D licked it up off the ground. But what I'm saying is they are big <laughs> enough that when they close off that wall, a lot of people are going to wind up on the outside. Yeah, And we are in a different space. There was a there was a period of time years and years ago where like it didn't matter if WotC sold books, D&D books. They were making so much money off the licensing stuff. It now is flipped. Yeah, they, they just sell, make it. They sell so many D&D books. When they release a new book, it's often the New York Times bestseller list. Like this. Hence, hence why there's going to be a new player's handbook. Yeah. I don't know if hence, like, the game... It's. I I'm don't not think, saying they did it just for money, but what I'm saying is it ain't going to hurt them when they release a new... No, th- when they it, release it a new set of core books. It won't hurt them. No. It, it, but it, Makes it, in a money. lot of ways, it's 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 needed. Sure. Like, and, and again, they're a business. They're Watsi's job... I don't want to be mean about this. Watsi's job is not for you to run a role-playing game. Watsi's job is to sell books. Correct. And cards, because that's the other half of their and house. And miniatures. And miniatures. Right. Their job is to sell stuff to you. Well, Wizkids doesn't. So, that's Watsi. So, no, no, they're, they're, they're separate. separate. Okay. But it's just a really sweet deal. But their job is to sell stuff to you. So they need to sell stuff to you. Yeah. And they got the movie coming out. Like, it's yeah. it's a good and it's a good time for D&D. Yes. And I also think that Watsi has enough cred built up from five that this is not a four to five See, event. The, the thing is, I think they honestly push this off as long as they possibly sure. could have. Like, I don't think that they actually want to do this. Yeah, but well, they they are like, I really don't. I think they'd really just keep making. No one wants an addition war. Correct. Nobody wants the addition war. That's right. the thing. Like, they yeah. don't want it. Which is why they won't. Which is why they won't say the word addition. Correct. Right? And which is which is why they've destroyed the version number. Yeah. They're from, trying so hard. Yes. That, that's why I think th- their marketing scheme yes. is the reason I think that they don't want to do this. That was my point why that was my point when I was joking earlier. They've gone to great lengths to not call this a version yeah. because yeah. of what happened in the past, but I honestly think first of all, a lot of gamers that are playing 5 did not participate in the edition wars. Correct. Yeah. The people who participated in the edition wars, I think on the tail end of it have seen that actually it wasn't bad. Yeah, and in, in this game like it's not going to be much different, I don't think, than fifth edition, and they're promising yeah. backwards compatibility. Well, and, and again, so they're doing what they're doing what Call of Cthulhu has been doing for years. Call correct. of Cthulhu has been incrementing that that system. Yeah, the cleaning up rules, fixing things. Right, yeah. and and it has not like they didn't disrupt their um, their fan base while they were doing it. They just like 
uh, we're pushing out a new version of the game. We're in, we're adding a few th- new things to it. Go play your it's also you know, order yeah. of magnitude and fan base. I, I personally oh, yeah. would say that it's less of a comparison between going from four to five than it is more of a comparison from going three five to four is what you're what they're trying to avoid. Like, yeah, yeah. You're because when you went from three five to four, people freaked out. Whoa, oh my god, this game is so different. It's a tabletop you know skirmish game now. It feels- it's a board game. Whereas they went from four to five. They opened up the playtest. They asked for input. They, you know, so there's they a lot learned. of similarities there They're, about getting that. That Phil, you know. Phil is correct when he says it's like the three to three five yes. thing, except the three five thing already exists yes. out there. Yeah, it's like They're three just, seven five, or it's like five seven five or something. Yeah. Like it's, it's it's like five six or maybe Tasha's really like was five point five one. Really, like, yeah. yeah, it's like five point five one. Like here, let's it, just fix. We we have all these rules. Yeah. They're in, in too many different places. They need to now be in one place, which they do. Clarify, codify, whatever. Yeah. The last thing I want to say on this before we should probably yeah, get off the topic. On. The yes. last thing I want to say is the other thing to take into account with do we not want to make a new edition is that this book, after all of the playtesting and everything, is scheduled to come out for the 50th anniversary of D&D. Sure. Smart. So, you know, there's your there's your other marketing hook. Yeah, it's an anniversary edition. So that's something else. I mean, even the name the of it, let's be clear, right? Marketing wasn't, marketing's not dumb here, right? No, no, no. How many D&Ds are there? There's one D&D. One D&D, D&D yeah. right? Like, I, and again, I'm not making fun of them, right? They are a business. They have marketing. Like, they know what they're doing. They're doing it on purpose, and it's okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. But it is absolutely their, um, it, it, it is. Like, it feels like marketing from terrifying, from being terrified. Absolutely. Right. The last thing they want is an addition war, a fractured base, another Paizo showing up like they absolutely don't want that. They're on a roll, man. They're killing. Yeah. It. Like I said, I don't think they wanted to make a new edition. Right. I just don't think they have a choice. Correct. The games they, like it, there's enough stuff there. And on top of it, their plans for closing out the ecosystem need the current population to stay. Yeah. By the way, when I say I don't think they have a choice, as a business, I don't think they have a choice. It's either this or start start slowly declining into nothing. What I can't wait for is like, you know, we're exhausting all the like Planescape, Dragonlance, um yeah, Planescape next year. Yeah. I'm I'm ready like like three years from now, birthright. Yeah, right. They're gonna have to because they're gonna have to squeeze the last of the settings out of that like old TSR. Man, just I'm ready for birthright. Give me I will by the way, I will play birthright if they make a five E birthright. Just saying. There's some cool shit in birthright. I don't think gets enough love. Better be better I, than I'm not gonna here. lie. If, if you're if you're if you're gonna do something like that and you need more more books to put out, I say Spell bring down. back Mystera and give us gazetteers like you did back in the day. Uh, I mean, who doesn't love a good gazetteer? I mean, the uh, the format that they have right now almost feels like a gazetteer because the Planescape, or not Planescape, I'm sorry, the Spelljammer uh, setting book is 64 pages. Let me yeah. tell you how they should do the gazetteer. And then we should jump off. They should make the gazetteer book, like for like stuff you can read about each of the kingdoms, whatever. But also, they should make a Google Maps version of the gazetteer. Like, I should be able to go into an app and just zoom right in, like down to the hex level. And be able to put things on it. Oh, that'd stuff. be cool. Yeah, because that cool, shit, do, cool because, digital tool. Because that shit, if I got my, I got my, um, and my, um, what's called my my new virtual tabletop, and now I'm like, okay, you guys are traveling from here to here, and like actually show the route and the calculated distance and time. Like Indiana Jones red dot on the map. <sighs> yeah. I really should have just, I really should have just done the one thing, one D and D in the after show. 
Sorry, right. everybody. Right. <laughs> you got bonus content tonight. Bonus folks. content. All right, all right. Let's 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 wrap this up. We yeah, can, I actually want to talk more about the digital table in the after shows. We'll sure, sure. All right, let's do some Patreon shoutouts. Thank you so much to the old school DM, our very own Mad Wizard Sean Merwin. Man, some of these people have been being patrons for oh, yeah, forever, man, for a decade. Troy Sandlin, Zach Goins, Carlos Martin, Chris Constantine, Cindy Moore, Eric Simon, Mirko Frolik. And Andrew Demps. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can get more of our content through our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash misdirectedmark, where we release videos on Tuesdays along with other content on our Patreon. My guess is that D&D segment's probably going to show up as some video content. Probably. Probably. It's probably a pretty good good bet. Um, You know, you can also listen to the show wherever you listen to your podcast like this one. Uh, I suppose I can say that even though you're listening to it here. Tell your friends, please tell your friends. Mm-hmm. You can also listen to other shows in the Misdirected Mark Network, such as They're a Super Geek, Mastering Dungeons, Bone, Stone, and Obsidian, Pandas Talking Games, The Gnome Cast, Bonus Experience, and back episodes of She's a Super Geek. You can and should also check out our sibling podcasts, Tabletop Bellhop. I think Mo just got done talking about I'm a monster in some way, shape, and or form. I have to listen to it still. The Knights of the Night and the all-new GM Mastermind. Well, it's not all new anymore. It's a little, it's now just new. The new GM Mastermind. <laughs> After you have picked out your framework and as you are setting it up to run your awesome game, leave us some feedback. Reach us via the old-fashioned email tubes, mmp at misdirectedmark.com. Hit us up on the Twitters. The show in the network is at misdirectedmark. Um, Robert M. Everson, The Light 101. Where you can get your smooth jazz uh, all day. In the, uh, on the injured reserve bench <laughs> is GM Gerrymander, and I am DNA Phil. You remember that Patreon we mentioned earlier? If you want to support us and other shows from Misdirected Mark Productions, you can do that at patreon.com slash MMP. Your patronage will get you access to the After Show podcast, our show notes, the Bamboo Lounge podcast, and other special releases. If we only had some right now. We'll get some soon. I have a feeling there's some stuff coming. Well, this has been a Misdirected Mark production, which is the media arm of Encoded Designs, which is all so starting to ramp up again. Uh, Mic drop. We out!